2: in rejection, in resistance, in defiance, in strength, in weakness, in solitude, in community, in comfort and in discomfort, in praise and in critique. In word, in song, in texture, in dance, in stillness, the women gather. When women gather, when we speak up, the earth quivers in response. There's power in the gathering, in the speaking, and in the creating. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Earlier this month, I had the pleasure of virtually gathering with some of the most influential women in the arts world, women leading and curating for major arts organizations. The panel was sponsored by the New Britain Museum of American Art to kick off their exhibition, Someday is Now, Women, Art, and Social Change. This hour, you'll hear from Denise Morell, Associate Curator of Nineteenth and Twentieth Century Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Thelma Golden is Director and Chief Curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Katie Siegel is the Eugene V. and Claire Thaw Endowed Chair at Stony Brook University and Senior Curator of Research and Programming at the Baltimore Museum of Art and Min Jung Kim is director and CEO of the New Britain Museum of American Art. And just to note, the New Britain Museum of American Art is an underwriter of Disrupted. I asked the panelists to talk about their journeys in the art world. Here's Denise Morell.
0: When I think about the way that I've come into this field uh, of art history uh, as a defining moment in my life, I would just want to evoke all of the, uh, of the curators, the artists, the art historians, as well as the broader political context in which they existed for making art part of my life, an essential part of my life, even when I was engaged in a totally different profession and coming into the museum, coming into the galleries, the artist studios, the art fairs, for uh, illumination, for learning, for beauty, for the joy of learning. So that is the way that I came to uh, the, the field of art history. And I think that's the way many others come to the field as well. So that has been probably the most defining aspect of uh, the fact that I'm, do- I'm sitting here today.
2: Thank you, Denise. And, and we will return to this point of your journey, because I think that your journey within this area says so much about what it means for women to not just face and challenge barriers but to determine that they will define their path on their own terms so thank you denise for joining us today katie siegel talk to us about your journey katie you are navigating different spaces as a professor as someone who is very much engaged in helping us understand the history and the evolving history of art but also challenging that divide between what happens inside the museum and what happens beyond the museum. So please share with us your experiences. I think my journey has been a slow one of
3: patience and becoming, and not because like Denise, I had another life so much. I think it took me a, a long time to understand two things. One, that my personal politics around race and class and gender could actually inflect the work that I do in a daily way and that, that activism could um, play a role in scholarship. And the second, um, I was very slow to understand that, that I had some personal power and that work in museums could actually impact um, individual artists' life. And that history wasn't something just for books. And um, that, things you do that don't have your name attached to them, that aren't books or exhibitions can be more important than those gratifying moments when we find ourselves
2: in the New York Times for a second. So it's been a slow journey,
3: that's my journey.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Katie. It is a journey that continues. Thelma Golden, I was struck by something that you said, that you knew the career and the path you wanted even before you had a name Forward. How do you go from being inspired by a board game or, or the art that was around you every day to creating this career and this journey that you are on? Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I
4: have to say that I was long given the charge to talk about my journey because it made it possible for others to then understand what this possibility was. So I grew up here in New York City and had the great gift of being able to spend time in museums from the time I can remember, both through school and also because my parents. So I always knew I wanted to work in a museum. I did not know what a curator was, but I articulated very early in my life this desire to spend my life, to spend my days in a museum. By the time I was in high school, um, I had the opportunity to come to know about the curator, Dr. Lowry Stokes Sims. She was frequently then as now um, featured in the press and her own scholarship and work were out in the world. And so as a 17 year old uh, applying to college, I wrote in my college application essay that I wanted to be a curator of contemporary art. And I knew exactly what that was because of Lowry and Lowry's position. So in so many ways, my opportunity to understand this as a path came from seeing other people who had done it, not only who've done the job, but inhabited it with so much purpose.
2: And Jung Kim, like Thelma, you had this early interest in art that was nurtured and cultivated. You moved to the United States from South Korea, and now, are one of the first immigrant people to lead this amazing museum. How do all of those parts of your path and your journey inform the work that you now do within this space?
1: Um, Kalila, as you mentioned, um, I did come to the United States um, at a at a fairly young age. Um, I initially came um, in the late 1980s to attend college, and um, Just to give a little background um, from my own perspective, I was born and raised in Seoul, South Korea. Um, And uh, Korea is of course now perhaps better known um, and very different from the country that I grew up in in the 1970s and 80s during an authoritarian regime. Um, But from there um, to come to the United States and be on a bucolic campus, Uh, pursuing a liberal arts education uh, is really where I kind of discovered art history. I didn't know that it existed, let alone understand the possibility of uh, having such a passion in that area grow into a career. Um, And that was something that was quite new to me as a career possibility other than becoming a lawyer or a doctor like my parents and many Korean parents probably wished. But this kind of education really opened up a world of possibilities for me that set the course for my own professional career. Um, At that time, I really wanted to stay in the United States and continue on to graduate studies, Uh, but I did end up going back to Korea, working for a few years. but then I did return uh, back to the United States in the mid-1990s uh, for the second and final time before I made it my permanent home. But after about 20 years of working in the museum field, I, um, I took a short break and, um, and fulfilled the dream that I really wanted uh, to do, which was to take an educational leave of absence. And I lived in England briefly to, um, to attend the Courtauld Institute of Art. Um, And I was 43 years old at the time, uh, which was a bit of a risk and certainly an immense luxury um, to do this in the middle of my career. Uh, But it was absolutely amazing. And I think all of these risks, if you will, and experiences have really helped shape who I am today. All of that in many ways came together to give me a very particular vantage point, Mm -hmm that continues to help guide me in my role as director of an American Art Museum in celebrating and exploring the richness and the complexity and the plurality of American art, Um, because the New Britain Museum of American Art is the oldest museum of American art. And from this position, it enables us to ask a very basic, but to perhaps some a provocative question, which is, what is American art?
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Who is American or who is not? Um, And from that point to really be able to encourage some conversation and some reflection so that we're very conscientiously creating spaces to um, hear different voices and present different vantage points and perspectives. Uh, And so that's kind of all of which that has brought me to where I am today. Men, you
2: mentioned two themes in your comments, one about the risk uh, involved with making these decisions or following your paths, but also this pervasive question of what is art more broadly or what is American art? And Thelma, in your work, you talk about um, Muhammad Ali and the me, we, right? And it shows that sometimes the views that people have about what is art is often different from how we experience art or who gets to define that experience. How much of your work and your journey has been about pushing back against those limited definitions and then opening up art to something that is accessible to more people?
4: I think most of my career has been devoted um, to that idea of opening the space of art, you know, as a curator, you know, and I am a curator where I'm, I'm thrilled to be on this panel with these amazing art historians, but I am someone whose full career and training has been in curatorial practice. Um, When I graduated from college in 1987, um, with a degree in art history and African American studies from Smith College, I began working in museums, you know, two months later. So you know, I worked in museums my entire career, and my work has always been about creating space, creating space for ideas, creating space for new art histories, creating space for artists creating space for audience. And that is about um, this opportunity of opening the institution. You know, this is a a profound conversation for me right now because the Studio Museum is closed. Um, We are in the midst of building a new building. And the me-we you referred to refers to a work of art that lived in the lobby of our museum, um, a neon work made by the incredible American artist, Glenn Ligon taken from the words of Muhammad Ali. The work is called uh, Give Us a Poem, and it is simply the words "miwi," we, right, which were spoken by Muhammad Ali when he was asked to give a poem. And so that really sums up this idea at, as an artwork about the individual and the collective, but it also is a work that lived in our lobby as a way to create the experience of art, as one that could live in the museum but also out on 125th Street, allowing for the experience of art to be open to all.
2: Katie, what is that distinction or, or the blurring of that distinction? You know, Thelma talked about opening up spaces and offering art to more people to also define on their own terms. And I know that's been very important to you, not just in your scholarly work, but also your work with the Baltimore Museum. Given cities and given spaces, how do you amplify the need to do that and the need to do it? And, and one of the things I really appreciate about your work is the need to do it continuously, as opposed to thinking, "Here's the achievement, here's the marker. Now we have that history."
3: I think I think part of the the more gradual process um, that I've been going through uh, to get to where to get to where Thelma maybe already was in some ways, you know, has been um, at Baltimore starting, starting with the idea there had never been a black artist who had had the main stage and a book. And okay, that's, that's the first thing that needs to be done and moving through acquisitions, moving on to women and to different kinds of diversity and then realizing this was just the first, very first step. Um, and that it was really about access, looking at the numbers, looking at audience, looking at who felt welcome in the museum, who could afford to come to the museum. Um, so I feel like I've done that in my scholarship, wanting to write in a way that was accessible, that um, anyone who was interested could read without a lot of jibber-jabber, theoretical jibber-jabber. Um, but I guess I feel like I'm just beginning to realize with my brilliant colleagues, at Baltimore, um, how deep that question of access is and how complicated.
2: That's Katie Siegel, Senior Curator of Research and Programming at the Baltimore Museum of Art. This hour, we're talking about women, art, and social change. We'll be back with Katie Siegel, Thelma Golden from the Studio Museum, Denise Morell from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Min Kim from the New Britain Museum of American Art. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, This is Disrupted. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're listening to a panel I hosted at the New Britain Museum of American Art to kick off their exhibit, Someday Is Now, Women Art and Social Change. Our panelists are Thelma Golden, Director and Chief Curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Katie Siegel is Senior Curator of Research and Programming at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Min Jung Kim is Director and CEO of the New Britain Museum of American Art. And Denise Morell is Associate Curator of 19th and 20th Century Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Ask Denise about her previous career in the world of finance and how it informs her current work in the art world.
0: Well, I think that a big motivation for me to segue, as you say, from finance consulting to art history was that in, during my business career, as I said, I spent a lot of my free time in uh, looking at art in various spaces, museums, galleries, uh, etc. Uh, and that took place in the frame, within the framework of my career. I lived here in New York. I too am a New York native, a Harlem native, in fact. Um, So one of the first museums I joined, in fact, I think the first, was the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, Thelma mentioned Lowry. I think about Mary Schmidt Campbell and just that entire, you know, sort of uh, pantheon, if you will, of distinguished directors and curators uh, up to and including uh, Thelma. But the fine art of collecting uh, seminars that I took on Sunday afternoons, uh, going to openings, joining a support group at the Museum of Modern Art, the Friends of Education, and through those activities, having direct exposure to artists and to curators, just increased my curiosity from being uh, a an observer to having my own questions that I wanted to participate in answering. Another big part of that for me was that my career was always uh, very international. I lived and worked uh, in, uh, overseas a couple of times in Europe, in, uh, in London in the late 80s, um, and throughout my career traveled extensively. So my my joy, a lot of my enjoyment on during open times, evenings, weekends, was to bring the museums of London, Paris, Tokyo, Sao Paulo, uh, Abidjan, the world. So I felt that I had this, on the one hand, an immersion in contemporary art here in New York, but also an engagement with history uh, through the, uh, the museums I visited while traveling. And I saw, it was when I saw that interest in history reflected in the practices of contemporary art and especially the practices of African-American or Black African diasporan um, women artists that I really felt like, okay, this is the way that I can knit the two together. I think about Faith Ringgold and her Dancing at the Louvre exhibition at the Old New Museum uh, down in Soho, uh, I think on Broadway. And the way that just really inspired me to follow her vision and look at uh, the history of early modernism uh, in Europe but also to think about and to visualize the way that these ideas, the aesthetics, the social and political activism were represented in her own community in Harlem. And the imagery that she made to represent that was a very important part of what was so compelling for me about becoming a voice or a conduit for the voices of artists uh, in, in this field.
2: You mentioned representation, Denise. And all four of you are path-breaking, defining women in multiple ways. And part of being the first or one of few is often shouldering the expectations that to some people may seem unreasonable. So it can be a hollow prize sometimes to be the first or again, one of few. Given how representation works within art, whether we are talking about artists or those who are engaging the art, have you felt pressured to feel like you not only have to show up and represent yourselves, but you are then judged against the standard for women or for based on your racial or ethnic identity what does that pressure to represent feel like? And more importantly, how do you navigate through it so that you are still true to your calling and not others' expectations? And so any of you would like to join in on that, please.
1: i um, sort of trying to think through how do I start with that process um, in, in answering that question. But, you know, it, it also comes to mind in terms of some of the I think potentially um, initial challenges in even being a part of this field. Um, and I have to say that um, very early in my curatorial career, you know, I was working for a, a private museum in Korea um, as part of the Samsung Foundation for Culture. And then a few years later, um, I joined the Guggenheim Museum, um, initially as a curatorial assistant in 1996. Um, And it was the job for which I moved to the United States for the second and the final time before it became my permanent home. And I was incredibly excited to be a part of a major museum in New York at that particular time. But the reality also was that um, I think I was making something like $26,000 a year. (laughs) Um, And uh, this is kind of the salary that is really difficult to live in, in New York. Um, and I was at this moment where I was trying to um, figure out, you know, how do I afford um, this career, um, especially for someone where I was coming anew um, as a first generation immigrant, um, and I didn't really have a, a support system. So I was, I was at a point in time where I was trying to figure out, do I want to continue a career at curatorial? So I I sought the advice of a um, uh, a more established curator, whose opinion I very much admired, and um, she, of course, told me if this was my passion, she encouraged me to to follow it. But she also was pretty um, uh, forthright in in discussing the financial realities and challenges of of continuing um, to be a curator, and um, to the degree to which she said, you know, unless you're Independently wealthy, you may indeed face challenges. So be prepared um, if this is the course that you want to take. Um, And that was on on the one hand, I really appreciated her candor. On the other hand, I felt um, really like there was a daunting prospect in front of me with many doors closed before I could even get to the front step. And um, thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, I, I wasn't independently wealthy. Um, I come to this country by myself. I had no family net to fall back on, uh, no support base or contacts or networks. And I think if anything, from today's perspective, looking back at my own experience, um, I think it makes me much more empathetic to young aspiring curators who may view a career in museums to be unattainable because they're not coming from privileged backgrounds or have a a network or support base. Um, But I have to say at the time, um, I think I was young and naive and eager to really work at a number of different things. And um, I was also fortunate to be at a museum that was experiencing tremendous growth and was looking for people who were open to taking on various roles that didn't fit neatly into any kind of job description. Um, so really doing everything, you know, from the non-curatorial to the museum capital uh, uh, projects to fundraising to special projects to special events, et etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that at the end of the day, those those variety of experiences um, and learning diverse skill sets mm-hmm. uh, really ultimately became the best training ground for me in um, becoming the, the museum professional that I am today. Thank you. And and
2: recognizing how what you are being told by well-meaning meaning people, because that's their experience, what that discouragement would look like for you, but also the point of what it may look like for other people who aren't even able to get to that step of having a mentor or someone to tell them about that. Katie, what about you?
3: Just to be clear, white women are not minority people in, in American art museums. Um, but I, I am to, in, in parallel to men a little bit. Um, I'm often in a room where I'm the only person who hasn't gone to an elite, Ivy League university. Um, in both the academic context and in the museum. And it's always um, just sort of a shocking reminder how far that journey is for so many people, for so many reasons and how hard it is to see yourself. Um, And also that imposter syndrome doesn't really mean necessarily that you don't deserve to be someplace, but it really may be that you don't belong there in the sense that you don't fit in. And so that's, a I think, a constant struggle for a lot of people
2: not to get those two things confused. And it it is for me. Thelma, you are leading the Studio Museum of Harlem, uh, as my friend calls it, the, the planet of Harlem, because he wants to be clear that Harlem is special to him. But it's also a space within a broader community that's seeing its own changes and broader debates about holding on to what makes Harlem special without allowing others to define what Harlem should be. So what does representation look like, not just in your your personal experience and your personal journey, but also in terms of leading this important community institution that has such a broad reach? Well, thank you for the question.
4: I think that the broader question that you ask us is often for me understood through my two distinct professional experiences. One, working for over a decade at the Whitney Museum of American Art, um, a legacy institution where I was the first African-American curator to work at the Whitney in, in its history, but also in my now 20 years working at the Studio Museum in Harlem, a culturally specific institution with a history rooted in Harlem and in Black culture. So, in many ways, this idea of representation is one that lives within me, in my work, Right, in that I have been representing throughout my career in many different ways. Right now, what that means is defining a space, the Studio Museum, around an idea of what it means to create an institution that is tied to a history, but also projecting itself into a future. And so really it's about a redefinition of black space and also about how we, through institution building, create spaces that have autonomy and authority around these definitions of race, of culture, of identity and community.
2: Denise, affirming that sense of agency that Thelma mentioned, is important because you are in a position with such tremendous, uh, not just power, but also a responsibility that you have shown in your work in many ways about how seriously you take that responsibility to not just make that position what you want it to be, but also to make it what needs to be in terms of affirming the work that has to be done internationally and of course within that particular museum space. What does representation or that sense of agency and ownership look like for you?
0: It is an interesting uh, responsibility, and, and and I feel that it's a privilege. Uh, I, I'm not someone who feels that it is a uh, a burden or something that I would rather have other people do. I've been happy. I feel that I have a sense uh, having. Come through my own personal journey, which, even though I had a previous career in business, began as a first-generation college uh, student. In my family, I come from uh, what my dad called everyday working folks. You know, and uh, full uh, scholarship for college, etc. So, I when I think about the space of the museum, which in many ways has, to some extent, deliberately been built architecturally and ideologically as a space where people like me have not historically been welcome, I feel very committed to the idea of changing, that, of, of changing that sense of not being welcome and not having a space within this space. And that plays out in two ways in my work. First, I want to look at what already exists within the museum, Mm -hmm. and think about the ways visible and invisible there has always been a presence of people of color, of African descent, Asian, Latin American, the entire spectrum. Uh, The more I look at the origins and the uh, foundations of modern art, the more I think that if we told that story as completely and as truthfully as it actually unfolded where there were African-American, early modernists of the Harlem Renaissance, Mm -hmm. and uh, modernist artists working in Japan, in Latin America, in Nigeria, in Senegal. If we can bring all of those narratives into the way that we present what has historically been presented as an exclusively European aesthetic, uh, European practice, and when I say European, uh, the construction of European Uh, is that it is monolithically white. So, foregrounding that presence, uh, to the extent that's possible with what is actually in the museum, but also very proactively seeking to broaden the representation of the presence, of this multi-ethnic presence in the collections, the exhibitions, and the programming of the museum. And so that has to do with acquisitions. Uh, It has to do with the selection of exhibitions. There, There are many exhibitions that you can do even with the work that's already there that can broaden the narrative rather than doubling down on the exclusivity of the way these narratives have been presented historically. And then the other part of it, I think, is just to broaden the range of representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, People of color, people of African descent in particular, are often presented in a very specific way, uh, in tropes of servitude, uh, in tropes of uh, obstacles that uh, are difficult to overcome, It's essential to have that representation. It is absolutely central to our history, but there are also people of color and always have been in every walk of life in these societies. And that invisibility, I think, is part of what constructs this impression that we didn't have a place. We didn't have an historical place. We weren't there. And that is an underpinning of the type of xenophobia, racism that we're, uh, 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 that we're dealing with today. So there's a big part of what I want to do is just to bring forth representation in its full diversity and its full complexity. And I think if we do that, then the work of audience development will be done. People will come to the museum because they see representations of themselves, as they see themselves there.
2: That's Denise Morel, Associate Curator of 19th and 20th Century Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Her panel also includes Thelma Golden from the Studio Museum in Harlem, Katie Siegel from the Baltimore Museum of Art, and Min Jung Kim from the New Britain Museum of American Art. When we come back from the break, we'll continue our conversation about women, art, and social change. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. Today, we're listening to a panel I hosted for the New Britain Museum of American Art to kick off their exhibit, Some Days Now Women, Art, and Social Change. It's on view now through January 24th. Our panelists are Thelma Golden, Director and Chief Curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Katie Siegel is Senior Curator of Research and Programming at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Denise Morel is Associate Curator of 19th and 20th Century Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And Min Jung Kim is Director and CEO of the New Britain Museum of American Art. From individuals to companies to schools, we're all in a moment where issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion are top of mind. So how does that play out in the art space? How do we expand on the idea of who should work at a museum, who should be an artist, who should love art, and what kinds of art are presented? How are the panelists making the most of this moment of change within the arts world? Here's Katie Siegel. I think the first step is
3: to acknowledge that we have cycled through this moment mm-hmm. over and over again with regard to all kinds of diversity and to think about what didn't happen that, that past time. Why, why did it come and go? So it, mm-hmm. at Baltimore, we feel committed to 2020 and to women beyond, you know, far beyond this, um, this brief moment. But I think we're, we're realizing, looking back at the history, that there wasn't structural change, you know. That there was change in terms of moments of representation, without change in the kind of um, staffing that Denise and Min are talking about. Um, and so that's one thing we've really we've really been emphasizing, in addition to acquisitions.
4: Thank you. Yes, and uh, following what uh, Katie said, I think that acknowledging the cyclical manner in which we have engaged in this really means demanding that when we are in a moment as we are now, that it isn't simply a mo- moment, but it becomes a movement. Mm. And in many ways, the Studio Museum is a result of that. Right? We came out of a very particular moment in the late 60s, which was very much like the one we're in now. And it was a moment that was demanding um, an idea of an opening of art museums, an opening to people of color, to women, to indigenous people. And at that time, lots of things happened in institutions across the country. It's an incredibly rich history. But what I feel so grateful to the founders of the Studio Museum is they saw that moment as the beginning, right? Not just episodic, but something to create And to build and that is about structural change. And I think the conversations that we're in in the field right now are positioning us towards another moment of considering major structural transformation.
2: Oh, please, Denise, go ahead.
0: I was was just going to add on to Thelma uh, speaking about structural change to say that from my perspective in a museum like the Metropolitan Museum, a big part of that is to think about uh, a change in point of view or a willingness to be self-critical uh, when thinking about how we as curators, as educators, as artists, even, uh, approach and perceive the work that we are doing. And I feel that the whole idea of, uh, of objectivity, uh, the idea that the museum is a space of objectivity, of objectiveness, is a place to begin that kind of self examination. Uh, the reality is that museums historically have not been neutral. Many of the works on view in museums are not there for purely aesthetic, uh, socio politically neutral reasons. Mm-hmm. And to take an objective uh, uh, point of view in presenting that work is to be, whether intentional or not, and often it's not intentional, it's complicit with putting forth these narratives that we really need to identify and rework and represent today. So I've been really uh, pleased with, to see the leadership of, uh, of the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, Thelma talked about the moment in the 60s f- uh, from which the Studio Museum was born. I think the fact that the Met in this moment took the step of stating publicly that an objective is for the museum to move from a position of non-racial perspective uh, to anti-racist perspective, I should say non-racist to anti-racist, is the beginning of that kind of journey for the Met and for other large encyclopedic museums. And all of the steps that have to take place to make that happen. uh, Doing the work of outlining, mapping out those steps, building into the practices of each of the stakeholders uh, for the museum, specific objectives that we're going to work toward to achieve this objective of moving into an anti-racist position. Also, the recognition that it is an ongoing journey. There's not there's no defined or clear-cut endpoint. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing sense of self-examination, being open to a broad perspective of ideas, multiple voices, collaboration, and commitment, just the commitment to do it. So that is what I think could possibly, uh, we, we don't know where this will end, but I see concrete steps being taken that are reason for guarded optimism.
2: So as we think about this conversation coming to a close, I can't help but think about what we're facing right now in the wake of this pandemic, in the wake of social distancing, and all of the disruptions in terms of how we would normally experience art and engage art together. There are many institutions who are fearful that they won't be able to continue and survive this. There are many artists who are concerned that people will see art as being something that is extra, as opposed to seeing it as something that is vital, that provides um, a way of renewing people's spirits and encouraging them to engage. What are your thoughts on that? that? That art is in fact enduring but that there may be challenges to the spaces and the ways that people can continue to engage art and men because you run this wonderful museum I'll start with you please
1: well it is it is indeed a difficult time and and as it is for many industries and in many fields but also uh, certainly for nonprofit cultural institutions and museums where in many ways it it also brings up and an, an existential question <laughs> as to um, what role we play as museums um, and how we reflect not only our communities, but the human condition, which is under great duress right now. Um, so there is, there is a lot that I think we as a field are, are really trying to dig deep in asking these soul searching questions. Um, at the same time, I think it, it presents as, as many challenges as it does Potentially um, also opportunities, which is something that I'd really like to hopefully focus on the positive in really deepening our engagement with our immediate communities and uh, further reflection as to how we might be able to uh, not only engage them, but also reflect them in meaningful ways. Um, and to do them in multiple spaces. Yes, of course, as museums, we we always want um, the direct experience of being um, in front of the work of art in that space, but also in parallel course to exploring what other alternatives um, uh, and opportunities exist in the the digital and in uh, opening up our collections and our exhibitions to uh, a number of, of audiences, who may not be able to physically come to our museum and also expanding our reach. So I think there too, there are uh, challenges, but also some extraordinary opportunities that we are um, looking forward to.
2: Thelma, what are the, the challenges and opportunities that you see?
4: I think that the challenges have already been stated. And I think those are not just challenges to our cultural, community, but to our communities as a whole, mm-hmm. I think the opportunity requires us to um, really honor the fact that as cultural institutions, we have a responsibility mm-hmm. and our responsibility often as cultural anchors is to serve our communities. And that can seem you know, somewhat obvious and neutral in good times, but in moments like this, it becomes all the more important to understand what service looks like. Or a cultural institution. So, in a moment like this, you know, um, our work has been completely involved with serving our audiences in our communities, taking advantage, of course, of our ability to do that in a wide way, but remaining intensely focused on the work that our institution has always done to uplift Black humanity and in doing so, providing, you know, not just what we might think of as the sort of cultural uh, aspect, you know, of what it means to engage with art, but to think of it from a spiritual perspective, right? How do we feed the soul Mm -hmm. of a community in times that are difficult and hard? And it is through art and in uplifting artists, right? And holding space for our artists in this moment. So that that's what I see as not even just the opportunity, but the responsibility. And I think this moment calls on all of us to really deeply commit, right, to mission and to purpose with responsibility.
2: That notion of art as a space of refuge but also a source of inspiration is so critical when I think so many people need that reminder of what they may be facing may be difficult, but in some ways is not new and art has the potential to be that mirror and that reminder. Denise, what about you?
0: Well, I was thinking along uh, very much the lines of art as a space of refuge mm. because, as I mentioned at various points in my life and career, uh, art, museums, the spaces of art, were definitely spaces of refuge and contemplation and simply enjoyment, the, the simple pleasure of engaging with ideas, with the visualization of ideas. And it doesn't always have to be loaded with, uh, with, uh, with social or political or economic, it can just be aesthetic ideas. I think the pleasure of teasing out the, um, the manner the various approaches to innovation to aesthetic innovation or to aesthetic mastery mastery of a tradition um, the, the 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 thought process of doing that is enjoyable and i think it opens the mind to other uh, forms of analysis so i think the more that we can make it compelling and engaging for the broadest possible public to come into the space where art is on view, the better chance we have to make our contribution, our specific contribution to the development of analytical skills and open-mindedness and awareness of the diverse strands of humanity that make up our societies. I think this is a role that, that art will always play.
2: Thank you for lifting up and affirming humanity and the, the need to acknowledge that for all of us. Katie. I think um, Baltimore would echo Thelma in that it's been a pressured moment,
3: but productive in terms of thinking about service and necessary. And we pivoted from you know, a high prestige speaker series to delivering art supplies to community members, to um, providing a platform for local artists and galleries that were struggling. Um, And as well as thinking about the opportunities people need to think, to be alone with painting um, that Denise is talking about. So I guess it's been a a really a moment to consider the relationship one of not just broadcasting out, but one of mutuality Mm -hmm. and really thinking about what can we do and what what can we contribute and what is a civic institution.
2: That was Katie Siegel, the Eugene V. and Claire Thaw Endowed Chair at Stony Brook University. Thanks to her and all of our panelists. Thanks also to the New Britain Museum of American Art. Their exhibit, Someday is Now, Women, Art and Social Change, runs through January 24th. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. This is the final episode of the year for Disrupted, and we've had lots of hard conversations about the disruptions we face and why we simply can't go back to normal. And yet, the common theme throughout each episode is a recognition that even in the face of uncertainty, there is hope, not a superficial hope that ignores the magnitude of these disruptions, but a hope born of the realization that each of us has the power to make a difference. After all we've endured this year, let's lift up the importance of art, conversation, joy, culture, and civic engagement for affirming our common humanity. Here's hoping 2021 brings all of us more joy, peace and health. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for joining us. See you all next year.